All right, so I'm recording now. I'm also recording now. All right. Okay, so let's uh, let's sync up the tracks. Um, hey, Sky, what day is it? Uh, today is blue. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan, the show where we take a book, uh, a rather dense book, and break it down piece by piece, chapter by chapter, and then come together and discuss it. Uh, our current book, of course, is Cloud Atlas, and we will be diving into section two of the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish today. Uh, Jonathan, unfortunately, is ill and cannot join us, but... Uh, Sky and I will be here to talk about the reading. So, without further ado, I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Uh, and. Timothy Cavendish. Timothy Cavendish, section two. So, that's going to be our our meat and potatoes today. But before we jump into uh, section two of Timothy Cavendish, let's take a moment and briefly talk about last week. Uh, last week. We finished up in Horizon of Sanmi 451. Yes. Um, would you like me to recap that, Katie? Sure. Go for All it. All right. So when we left, last left our hero, the ascended Sanmi 451, uh, she was in the middle of watching the film, The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, uh, with uh, her friend who turned out to be part of the resistance. Uh, so the union and so they uh, meet up together and make a daring escape journey and she gets plastic surgery to make her look like a, uh, a pure blood human and they go see all of the horrors of the modern world including uh, the processing plant where other f fabricants are butchered and then turned into meat for fabricants and people uh, and pure bloods. Uh, and then she writes these uh, treatises about uh, what are the, what are these called? Hold on. Oh, the, her declarations. Thank you, Katie. The declarations, um, which outline uh, you know the ills of the world and their remedies. Um, and then, just as she finishes the declarations, she is captured. Uh, and then she gives the interview and is executed. And she believes that her entire time. Uh, as part of the union was all orchestrated uh, as a way to uh, stifle dissent. Um, and then right before her execution, she asks for, uh, as her last request, to be able to finish the film The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, which is where we begin uh, this week. Right. So we jumped back in with Timothy Cavendish. And just to briefly go back to that story, since it's been a while since we've... We've talked with old Timbo. Uh, Timbo part one. Indeed. Yeah, Timbo, which we learn uh, is, is his nickname, which I think is fantastic. Told in this the, the form of a memoir of sorts. And Timothy Cavendish is uh, kind of a mid-60s, uh, in, in his mid-60s, and he works uh, as a publisher for a vanity press. And basically gets caught up in... Uh, this deal where he's got this horrible gangster client who in in the first section throws some dude off the roof of a building and Cavendish has a lot of debts to settle and the the brothers of this scary author dude like 
are after him. So Timothy asks his brother for help and for financial help too. And his brother's response is to send him to, unbeknownst to Timothy, a nursing home uh, far off in Hull. And so Timothy goes through a series, a comedy of errors of strange train rides and whatnot until he finally ends up at this place, which unbeknownst to him is this nursing home that's really quite horrible. Uh, the staff are abusive and it's pretty menacing and, 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 and scary in nature. And so he tries to escape, but of course is caught and is unable to, to get out. Also, we learn that Timothy, uh, being a publisher, has been submitted a copy of a manuscript called Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery, and he, he wasn't very fond of it, but that's how we got the connection from the previous work. Uh, and so anyway, Timothy is imprisoned, basically, in this nursing home, and he's trying to think of a way to, to get out. Uh, and then just as the, the section ends, Timothy has some strange seizure and blacks out. And that is where we will rejoin our friend Timothy Cavendish today. Oh, yes. Um, this section, uh, this section begins with us, uh, learning along with Timothy Cavendish that, this seizure blackout of sorts was a minor stroke, uh, and the first part of this section is dedicated to his recovery from his stroke. Right, and I liked, there was something right off the bat that he says, like, if my life were to be made into a movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Timothy Cavendish, you you know things, uh, or do you? But so he says, you know, if, 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 uh, Timothy Cavendish, if the life of Timothy, Timothy Cavendish were to merit being turned into a film, he he would hope that this section would be made much more uh, uh, f in in favor of his character. So like he's he's like got some awesome training montage or like a John Wayne Cavendish on a walker. Yeah, this is this is orders or sort of um uh like directions he's given to Lars, a serious looking Swede who he imagines will be directing the film based on this these events. Um, right. But it, I think it's interesting. Uh, one thing that we talked about in the first section was that there are, in the first Timothy Cavendish section, there are a lot of references to films, like both actual historical films that exist in real life and sort of filmmaking. And mm -hmm. we thought that, that, or at least I thought that that was kind of weird at the time. I was like, this guy's a publisher. Shouldn't he be talking about books more? Um, but... I think this section does a lot more with uh, Timothy Cavendish discussing films, trying to get his life made into a film, and then we know that it is made into this film that is then in the future watched by Sanmi451. So I think that was cool. Right, and we have that knowledge now, so it so it makes much more sense. Yeah, I really wonder if like the intense Swede Lars is like a real character in the universe of Cloud Atlas, like... If there's, like, a real guy who ends up making this movie, his name is Lars. I'd like to hope that he is, and I'd like to hope that he, that he is turtlenecked. Oh, yeah, that's right. Lars is supposed to be a, an intense turtlenecked Swede. Yes, which was delightful. Uh, but getting back into this section, man, I missed Cavendish, kind of, you know? 
Yeah, he's a lot less racist in this section, which is nice. He is a lot less racist. Uh, and I, I don't know I don't know if it was the seizure or what, but <laughs> but he, he becomes a lot more likable to me in this section. Yeah, this is almost I mean the if you take the um the whole Timothy Cavendish story as a kind of single narrative, it's very much a kind of like Christmas Carol narrative where he starts out as like Ebenezer Scrooge and then he's visited by the three spirits of his stroke and then when he awakes <laughs> he's like, "Oh, I'm not too late." And then he decides to I mean, it doesn't really do much good, but he decides to like not be as much of a miserable jerk as he was in the first half. Well, I mean, first he falls into this deep depression. Uh, so as as he's recovering, he he it, he kind of understands that he's he's all alone and no one's gonna rescue him. Yeah, this first section definitely has the sort of pensive uh, meditation on like life and death and time and the cyclical nature of those things that make it a true Cloud Atlas uh, original. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got some choice lines like time no arrow no boomerang but a concertina um and a concertina is like a little accordion kind of thing so time going like in and out and collapsing on itself it's very much of a cloud atlas yeah that's that's very uh experimental of him yeah and in this section also he does a lot of describing the undead the other patients in the or the other residents of the retirement home that he's in um right there's some great stuff there yeah 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 uh there was yeah so it's around christmas time there's there's a particularly great reference to that he says a few days before our savior's birthday a mini busload of private school brats came to sing carols the undead sang along with wrong verses and death rattles and the racket drove me out it wasn't even funny yeah he's i mean like at one point he says like i didn't hang myself because i was too miserable Actually, I didn't hang myself because I was too cowardly. Like he is, right. in, he is really. De- I mean, understandably, very depressed. I and his descriptions of the, of the like sort of old and dying are like are, in true Timothy Cavendish fa- fashion, both super bleak and super colorful. Um, at one point, he says that the the other residents were nice to me solely because in the kingdom of the dying, the most enfeebled is the most common Maginot line against the unconquerable Fuhrer. Like, w- wow. Uh, in which the unconquerable Fuhrer is death itself. That's pretty bleak. Yeah. Um, so a lot of bleakness um, interspersed with mashed bananas and ice skating ducks and other great (laughs) Cavendish descriptions. And with Cavendish giving another chance to that manuscript, Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery. Oh, yeah. Because as he's recovering and he doesn't really have anything to do and he's obviously doesn't feel at home with the rest of the undead, he decides to to, to pick up the Louisa Ray mystery again and starts editing it and then actually decides that it it it, it maybe does merit it's uh, more than being cast aside. But he what's interesting 
in this section, what's most interesting to me is that Cavendish... So, in in Louisa Ray, she... Remember, she feels spooked that she felt this kind of connection to Frobisher. Um, because she... She said, oh, I don't believe in that reincarnation stuff, you know, but but she feels kind of spooked. And so Cavendish reading this specifically says that um, that the, 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 new, the notion that Louisa Ray is Frobisher reincarnated is uh, far too hippie druggy new age. And then he remarks that he does also have a birthmark, but... It, that's he does he says but no lover ever compared it to a comet georgette nicknamed it timbo's turd Indeed. which there being timbo the great uh nickname and timbo's turd i mean that's golden uh that's some classic david mitchell gold right there y'all can <laughs> really? have that one for free um, I guess George, so Georgette is the wife of his brother. So, like, he reveals yes. that at one point he and his sister-in-law had had an affair. So I guess his sister-in-law calling him Timbo, maybe it is, like, a family nickname. And because his sister-in-law, like, married into the family, she knows this nickname. I guess maybe he wasn't known as Timbo to, to everybody. Oh, maybe, yeah. But we can still pretend that he was. It can be our headcanon, we- Katie. We can still hope. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make that a thing that everyone called Timothy Cavendish Timbo. Yeah. That was just that was just his name. I think that's all right. But uh what I think is so great about that is so Timothy is supposed to be one of these reincarnated souls, if I'm not mistaken. He's supposed to be the the soul comet, but he completely denounces the idea of the soul comet. So what is Mitchell saying here? Um, I think it's interesting because Timothy Cavendish is not one to minimize his own grandeur. Uh, and yet he is to- wholly dismissive of, uh, of any ideas that he himself is part of this, you know, epic hero of time struggle. Uh, but I don't know. Everybody uh, has different ways of thinking about their space comets birthmarks. <laughs> I, I I almost feel like like we'll we'll get to understand more what being the comet means by the end of the novel. I hope we do because we have this idea that the comet the 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 comets are these you know reincarnations and are like important in some way, but it's not really clear what the nature of their importance is yeah is it is it just that they're all tying these disparate stories together or what i don't know and perhaps we shall find out but timothy cavendish sure does not put any stock in it whatsoever nope and thinks thinks that it's it's silly uh yeah i mean his he's definitely the hero of his own story but uh maybe he's just too selfish to share his hero-ness with his past and future selves (laughs) (laughs) I am singular. Yeah, totally. Um, singular Timbo. So around this time, we're introduced to Ernie Blacksmith and Veronica Costello, two other residents of the Aurora House, who have a degree of autonomy um, that many of the other residents do not have. Yeah, they they all like hide out in the boiler room, 
Yeah, Ernie is a, a old Scotsman who, who you know, knows how to work the boiler rooms. And so they, in exchange for having him work the boiler rooms, he sort of gets to, you know, go off on his own a little bit more than everyone else. And he's a pretty no-nonsense Scotsman. Um, and his companion, Veronica Costello, she's cool too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Cavendish starts hanging out with them. They give him some whiskey. Uh, and... They talk escape plans. Right. And yeah, at, at first they kind of, he's, he's kind of cagey about it, but they eventually warm up to each other because they're all on the same page of, of, of wanting, wanting to escape. And one day when they're hanging out in the boiler room, they hear this voice and it is the son of one of the uh patients i suppose at aurora house and he's yelling about uh the family the family jewelry uh that is mother uh hotchkiss that was that that was the name yeah so hotchkiss um lady hotchkiss is a uh a patient and she I guess out of spite, buried all of the family jewels in a box somewhere and won't tell her son uh, where they are. And so the son is always visiting to try to get the location of the jewels out of his mother. Right. And so this eventually leads to an an idea uh, because Ernie says that so Hotchkiss drives this Range Rover and always stupidly leaves the key in the ignition when he comes to visit. So here is an opportunity. An opportunity for escape. But that's not his first escape attempt, which... uh... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, So... There's this scene where he sort of in the middle of the night manages to sneak into um, the office, uh, Noakes, Noakes's office, and uh, attempts to call. First, he attempts to call uh, his secretary, Mrs. Latham, um, but not, nobody picks up. And so then he calls his brother. And when he tries to call his brother, uh, all he gets is his, his sister-in-law, Georgette who is very drunk, um, and after a lot of funny drunk telephone conversation, it is revealed that his brother, Denholm, has uh, died of a stroke and has been sitting in their carp pond out back for weeks. Yeah. Which, so, is, is, is it intentional that it's carp? Because who was it? That took the form of a carp. Oh in... snap! Yes, that's right. We've got that carp. Um, the the wonderful carp description from the Sanmi uh, section, where oh, what was that character's name? Um, yeah, who was it? it? Was it was the leader of? Was it the it was the, the, the abbess? Of the union. Uh, no, it wasn't it was... the abbess. It was like the abbess's boss. <gasps> that's right. That's right. It was the leader of union. Yeah, and he took the form of a carp. Yes. Um, Oh, see if I can find that really quick. The carp. David Mitchell. Uh, Encore Apis is the name of uh, of the carp man. Um, I feel like 
I wonder if carp is turned up elsewhere. We should probably take a look for carp elsewhere in the novel at some point because I bet, I don't know, maybe we'll get some other carp references. But anyway, he, There's was, gotta he be. was eaten by carp. Uh, and in fact, at one point, Timothy Cavendish says, like, turned into carp. Um, and because I guess Georgette, like, was too freaked out and, like, never notified the police or, like, hospital or recovered the body in any way. And Yeah, she didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, so that's, like, a weirdly, like, tragicomic scene. It's also, like, indicated, perhaps, that, um, that Denholm was, like, murdered by a... F- like someone who stole his art collection or something, but it's not clear how like seriously we should take that. I think. Yeah. It like it's unclear if that's just like Georgette being crazy or like Timothy Cavendish being crazy or if that's like actually what happened. Well, and I think we've had moments in Cavendish in the Cavendish story before that have been exaggerated, and Cavendish, it, of of course, embellishes things. And we've wondered, is this is this accurate or is this just a Cavendish em- embellishment? So who's to know, really? But the main thing is, is that Denny has died. And, and Georgette is not going to be able to help Cavendish. And, uh, re- yeah, you'll, uh, dear readers, you'll remember that it was Della... Uh, Whoa, man, I always mess up his name. It was uh, Denholm, who, uh, Denny, who arranged for Timothy to be locked up in Aurora House to begin with. So Cavendish is sort of in a weird place here because he's not sure whether or not this will mean that the money will run out and he'll be released or if it if uh, Denny had set up some sort of like trust or like recurring payment system that will sort of keep him locked here forever because the only person who knows where he is is now dead. Um, and he is unable to... Uh, oh, and he, he gets caught also. Um, so uh, Nurse Noakes catches him uh, doing this and tries to like publicly shame him at, uh, at breakfast the next day. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, again, with the undead, one by one, those undead sentient enough to follow the plot joined in. Shame on you, shame on you. So this, that, this is one of those moments where I wonder, like, this public shaming, could that be an embellishment too? Or is this place actually this absurd? Yeah, I mean, and then, but then, like, because Cavendish gets out of this shaming and punishment in this, like, sort of extravagant, like, witty judo move that he plays on uh, Nurse Noakes, where he basically says, like, a vision of St. Peter told me that my brother had died and that I had to go to the telephone to f- confirm. And the vision of St. Peter assured me that you, Nurse Noakes, a devout Catholic, would understand. And this actually works. So, yeah, I think this whole scene may be uh, substantially embellished by Mr. Cavendish. But but it's great, even if it is, because, yeah, that's that's the exact kind of craftiness that Cavendish would would get up to it's our classic Cavendish oh. right here. <laughs> Love it. Um, so at this point, he starts playing Patience, the card game, which we Americans know as Solitaire. Um, 
but I thought this was interesting. He says, Patience's design flaw became obvious for the first time in my life. The outcome is decided not during the course of play, but when the cards are shuffled before the game even begins. How pointless is that? Um, and I thought that was interesting as like a metaphor for all of our heroes um, and a sort of like wider statement on like fate and predestination that David Mitchell might be making. I feel like all of the like we see all of these like generation upon generation, all of these reincarnated comet heroes and their outcome is, seems to be decided when the cards are shuffled before their game begins. Um and Cavendish says, how pointless is that? So I, I don't know. That's something I'll be, like, thinking about going forward. Like, uh, what is the point of the of the shuffling uh, and the the different lots for the uh, the Comet heroes? Yeah. And is that, the sa- like, the same as Sanmi451 being planted by the government to... Yeah, exactly. To- to discourage actual abolitionists. Well, cause, b- yeah. because when Sanmi451 at the end of her segment basically says, like, yeah, this whole thing was, like, set up from the start. They they knew it the whole time. Like, this is all a setup. She's making a similar sort of, like, fatalistic statement as Timothy Cavendish is making here. So I wonder if we'll get that from some of our other um, uh, Comet heroes as the novel completes itself. Yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um. And then we get the heist or the escape yes. or the I don't know the rest of this the rest of this section is like an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, he describes it as a, a dominoes, a, a, a flight of dominoes, and it it really like it goes quickly. It does, it does. So yeah, Cavendish has to make amends with his Rat Pack basically, and. And they start to devise this escape plan, and Cavendish agrees to get them to to, to help him. He agrees, okay, he's going to take them then with him when he escapes Aurora House. So Ernie and Veronica are in on it, and here it is, the day that the plan is going to go into effect, December 28th. So they have this stolen cell phone. And they use it to call uh, this John Hotchkiss, son of Lady Hotchkiss, and tell him that his mother is dying and she wants to tell him where she has buried the, the family's precious jewels. So, if, so of course, this is going to get Hotchkiss to, to, to come. Yes. Uh, yeah, he takes the bait. And at the same time, they... Um... They launch the second bit of bait, which is they inform Nurse Noakes that Timothy Cavendish has died. Right. Um, and this part's great. The big unknown lay in Nurse Noakes's personal loathing for me. Would she rush to see her enemy fallen? To stick a hat pin in my neck to check I was truly dead? Or celebrate in style first? <laughs> Um, I'm not really sure what Timothy Cavendish thinks that the outcome of those, th- like those three different outcomes, would do for their plan. But um, Nurse Noakes indeed rushes to see her enemy fallen, which is, I guess, what they wanted her to do. I wasn't really clear on how that part was supposed to play out, but I guess it went according to plan. Yeah, well, that's what they wanted because 
they were gonna lock her in in the room Mm -hmm. basically so sure enough noakes goes to investigate cavendish has been hiding locks her in the room and now veronica is there to greet hotchkiss as he arrives and as he always does leaves his range rover with the keys in the ignition so effectively giving them a getaway vehicle yep um and so they managed to get into the range rover but in fact they find out that there is no key in the ignition because uh hotchkiss's wife was in fact the one driving, and she has removed the keys. However, right. they eventually find a second key, and just before everyone comes and closes in on them, they're able to get the car started, and they start making their daring escape. Uh, at this point, it is revealed that uh, Ernie, who has claimed to be a locksmith who can, like, pick the lock on the gate is just like yeah i can't pick that kind of lock you're just gonna have to ram the gate and hope that we're going fast enough and the gate is loose enough so that we bust it open instead of just all dying a fiery death yeah so uh so that you know that that's another maybe a timothy cavendish embellishment right there uh but they they are able to get through the gate and they start driving uh, north to Scotland, uh, where Ernie is in, I guess, home territory, and they finally get to a sort of like a pub uh, called the Hanged Edward, which I thought was a pretty funny uh, pub name. I like pub names in the UK are all bonkers, delightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, bonkers, but also delightful. Um, this this one, yeah, the 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 hanged. What was it? The hanged Edgar? Yeah, or Ed Edward? The hanged Edward. Uh, it, this doesn't have an and in it. It's usually like, the bird and baby. Sure. Um, bird and baby. Yeah, like the elephant and castle is a famous yes. one. And yes. Stuff like that. Or something like that. So, uh, so they go to the hanged Edward. They have, they, I guess, like, have uh, Hotchkiss's wallet, and they start ordering drinks, and Cavendish gets a they're cigar. they're going to celebrate. Yeah, they're going to celebrate. And everyone in the bar is watching uh, England play Scotland uh, in football on the, on the TV, and which, again, it seems sort of, like, too neat to be real. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, at this point... Uh, Cavendish realizes that the map that they have planned their entire escape route on, he has left in his room the one that he locked Noakes in. And so Noakes now knows where they're going to be. Right. The, the, the great flaw in the plan, Cavendish. So literally as the moment that he realizes this, Withers shows up who was uh one of the guards who had Yeah, he was trying like to stop the enforcer. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, he said and I, I, I love this though, because Cavendish Cavendish, are you sure? He says 
And at that exact moment, I fib not Withers looked in. So, Cavendish, you know that we don't trust you. Uh, but I'm I'm still willing to just because it makes the story so great. I'm I'm willing to believe. Well, it. so and the rest uh, of the the rest of this section is basically like the triumphant end of like a movie from the eighties. Like, it, oh, absolutely! It's, it's got this whole like ridiculous, like campy, like you know, climactic moment, and then everyone's cheering, and I, it's absurd. Right, because. Basically, what happens uh, now? We we forgot uh, to mention that as they drove away, they realized that Mister Meeks, who was the fourth of their boiler room uh, group, who is this—he's like this eighty-something-year-old dude who doesn't say a whole lot except for. What is it? I know. I know. Yeah, he's like so he's yeah. he's assumed to be senile by the rest of them, mm-hmm. and basically just says I know and like hangs out with them. And then for like yeah, they were not planning to escape with Mister Meeks, but as they are driving away from Aurora House, he just says I know in the backseat, and he's been there the whole time. Right, because I mean he was listening to the plan, so <laughs> when he saw it going down, Mister Meeks. Uh, slipped into the backseat, I guess. I guess, yeah, ensured he was going to get out too. But proved to be quite useful because as this scuffle begins to go down, Mr. Meeks basically incites a riot. Yeah, so he he jumps onto the bar. Everyone turns off the TV and stops watching the game. And he just says, are there no... I can't... I'm not even going to try to do his Scottish accent, but he goes, are there no true Scotsmen in the house? And then In the hoose. In the hoose. Yeah, that's... (laughs) So uh, everyone's very stunned. And then he says... Those there English giants are trampling over my God-given rights. <laughs> uh, and so at that point, there's basically a bar- a giant bar fight in which one of Withers' teeth is knocked into Cavendish's glass of scotch. And he he takes it out. He he. Cavendish specifically says that he takes the tooth out so that you will believe him. Like he's he, he's not even pretending anymore at this point that he, to to not know that he's been an unreliable narrator. He's like, I kid you not. He says, I fib you not earlier, and then says, I took the tooth just to prove that this actually happened. So I don't know, but yeah, it's too perfect. It's great. The of course the Scottish football fans are going to turn on these people, especially because uh, Withers says something, and they all like hear his accent, and they're like, "Yup, nope, he's he's going down." Yeah, he's English, uh, maybe, <laughs> and from the south. Yeah, I mean it's it's very much like the ending of an '80s like snobs versus slobs movie. Uh, yeah, and and so then, uh, that's where the sort of narrative of Timothy Cavendish ends, and then he gives an epilogue. Um, right. So the ghastly ordeal has concluded, and now Cavendish tells us that he's living quite comfortably, and he's in the middle of writing his memoir, which is what we're reading. Yep. Yeah. This this last part reads like the part 
at the end of Animal House where it tells you what happened to all the characters. I mean, it's it's like, yeah. they, you know, he's like, you know, tidying up all of the, the different plots that were going on. Right. And so he he's currently still making money off of Knuckle Sandwich, which has been made into a movie, and also does think, as he mentioned earlier, that his own memoir would be a great subject for for its own film as well. Uh, and he says he's still going to give Half-Lives another, another go. And he has finally been sent the second half of it. And so he wants to see what's going to find out, or wants to see what's going to happen next. And this, of course, being how we will see the end of the Louisa Ray mystery through Cavendish's eyes as he's reading it. Yeah, which is, it's cool. So he sits down to read the next section of Half-Lives, as we will next week. Half-Lives of the first Louisa Ray mystery. Ooh, bum bum bum. Bum, bum, bum. Um, so yeah, uh, Katie, I think we both really enjoyed the Timothy Cavendish sections of this novel. Um, yes. And uh, I I felt like the second part really, um, it reminded me, especially the, the sort of like escape part of it, it really reminded me of uh, Toad of Toad Hall. It was. It had that kind of uh, feeling, uh, both the pro style and the content. Did you ever read *The Wind in the Willows* as a child, Katie? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a favorite of mine when I was young, and uh, this, you know, both to- Mr. Toad and Timothy Cavendish are kind of like lovable, sca- like scalawags who are like. They they think they're higher class than they are, and they think they're much more charming than they are, and they like to brag about <laughs> themselves, and then they like do bad things, and all, but then also make daring escapes, and somehow you as the reader love them. Uh, I don't know how to write such. I wish I knew how to write such a character, because uh, that's a very difficult needle to thread. But I feel like Timothy Cavendish really uh, pressed pressed a lot of those same buttons, um, and had a daring car chase scene, which is another similarity. Absolutely. And it's also really easy to see uh, why Sanmi451 was so intrigued by this. Um, because basically, Cav- the, this whole escape of Timothy Cavendish, I feel, inspires Sanmi451. Yeah, I was wondering as I was reading this, Katie, do you think that, like, Sodomy 451 requests to see the end of the Timothy Cavendish movie and then is, like, led off to be executed. Do you think she's, like, satisfied with the end of Timothy Cavendish's story? I think so. I, I, yeah, I think so. Because it's, it's kind of like, as Timothy Cavendish tells us at the end, and they live happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it gives her hope because, you know, Sonmi writes these declarations in hopes that one if not many will 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 see her story and will kind of take up the charge where she is forced to leave it being executed yeah sanmi's um, sanmi's thing is very much about like she's very fatalistic at the end but cavendish's story is very much about like resurrection of a kind like he's he talks at the end like now that i have you know, I'm. I know I'm old. I'm not middle aged anymore. But like, I've been to the ends of 
oldness and returned from them and I feel like full of life or whatever now. Right. Yeah. So yeah, um He's a, he he's escaped the undead. Yeah. So uh so yeah. Um Let's see. Did you have a uh, a favorite line or quip of all the many great quips of Timothy Cavendish? Oh man. I have to find it. Do you have I mean before we get into to quips and quotes and jips and japes, uh do you have any other Cavendish thoughts? Uh I think I think that's about it. I think that the the main thing that struck me as fi- from finishing Tim- Timothy Cavendish was I I now really do see why Sonmi was so intrigued by his story and why she wanted to finish it. Yeah. It's um and Sonmi also says like when she describes watching Timothy Cavendish in the first part of Sanmi 451 she says like and it was this crazy world where people grew old and died and they were like super decrepit and everything was terrible and they were held against their will and it's interesting like you wonder what she thinks of when she sees the end part where he is sort of like escapes and rescued from all of that at least temporarily (laughs) um Oh, I f- okay, I found my favorite. I found my favorite quote. Okay. Um, so let's see. It's it's uh before this plan has been devised. This is this is happening while Cavendish is in deep in the throes of this depressed state as he is recovering from his mini stroke. And um Okay, he says, uh, what wouldn't I give now for a never-changing map of the ever-constant ineffable to possess, as it were, an atlas of clouds? Oh, that's right. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that part, but we should talk about that part. Yeah, we should talk about it now. I'm glad I remembered that this was my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So there's like this just one paragraph section that is not terribly, t- like, terribly, jo- like, joined to the you know, preceding or successive section um, that is just like, it's very much a paragraph that's like, this is the cloud atlas part where we discuss the atlas of clouds. Um, yeah. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful paragraph. Yeah. Um, Katie, do you want to like read that paragraph in its entirety? Sure. So here it is. He says, Three or four times only in my youth did I glimpse the joyous isles before they were lost to fogs, depressions, cold fronts, ill winds, and contrary tides. I mistook them for adulthood. Assuming they were a fixed feature in my life's voyage, I neglected to record their latitude, their longitude, their approach. Young ruddy fool, what wouldn't I give now for a never-changing map of the ever-constant ineffable to possess, as it were, an atlas of clouds? And, uh, I... We all come to that realization, don't we? Uh, I guess. I mean, we're still we're still young, Katie. I, you know, we are we are still young, but but still, even I mean, yeah, no, I'm I'm a young person, but I I, I still, even so, think oh, I I I I knew nothing when I was a child. Oh sure, sure, yeah, and um, 
I guess, uh, a never-changing map of the ever-constant ineffable. An atlas of clouds. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm still not quite sure what this means. Like, right, the, the cloud atlas is, I guess, supposed to be never-changing and ever-constant, but also, like, clouds are always changing and are never constant so i'm not really mm-hmm. sure what that's supposed to be about yeah well i think it just goes back to the idea of that that that, that you try to grasp throughout this novel of like what what is what is the end goal of this of this soul comet and the more that you try to make an, an atlas of it the more that it gets hazier and wispier oh sure occasionally i glimpse a truer truth but as i approach it it you know whatever it does it moves or whatever yeah yes, yeah yeah I, I think it's tied into that okay yeah that that paragraph is super cool um the the sort of uh, sentence that I picked out is a little bit more uh, neat and tidy. Um, it's <laughs> when he's uh, discussing reading Louisa Ray. He says, books don't offer real escape, but they can stop a mind scratching itself raw. Um, which I thought was a fun uh, little quip in the Timothy Cavendish style. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I, I don't know about you, Katie, but like most people who read a lot of novels, uh, I'm a sucker for, uh, like, sort of like masturbatory, uh, you know, quips about how great reading books is. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, whatevs. I like that. And I think I, Mitchell's on to that. Uh, yeah, I think, like, actually one of the cool things about Cloud Atlas is that it forces you to think a lot about the act of reading, um, as nearly all of the protagonists come in touch with their past lives through reading about them or reading things that they wrote. Um, so I think that's definitely, like, something that's a, a theme in this book, is, like, the act of reading. Yeah. All right. Um Katie, did you have a I I feel like every week I'm going to I'm going to level with you Katie and also you dear listeners. I feel like every <laughs> week I like pick a different name for and mess up the title that you and John have been or the like names that you and John have been using for like years now to describe your like quotes of the week and like recommendations and I know they're not quotes of the week and recommendations. So, can you tell me once and for all what I'm supposed to call these? I always get this wrong. I I always have just called it like favorite thing of the week. Okay. And sometimes it's a quote, sometimes it's a recommendation, sometimes it's a thing you did, I don't know, sometimes it's something completely stupid. Usually in my case it's a silly YouTube video or something, but but yeah, what uh, a fa- favorite thing of the week. Okay. Favorite thing of the week. Yes. So, uh I I have I have two actually very I just just briefly i don't have a whole lot to 
to say on them, but uh, so this this past week I saw Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Oh, no spoilers. And, uh, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, no, I won't give any spoilers. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't seen it yet, and I saw it um, this week. Uh, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. I uh, am enjoying what they're doing with these new Star Wars movies. Um, this one, it's 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 feels darker than the like canonical Star Wars series, which it is outside of the series. It's a standalone film. But uh, I, it, it was, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I liked the characters. I liked the story. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's much more that I can say on it without being too spoilery. But it's, it's, it was, it was definitely worth it. Yeah. I, it, and then my. Oh, sorry. It seems like most people have been saying I haven't seen it yet, and I plan to. But most people have been saying that it's a, a sort of a pleasant surprise, which is just kind of nice. Like, it maybe is. Maybe there's still some good in this world. <laughs> It, it is it's and it is it's it's dark but it does give you hope i think uh which which is the entire goal of of the movie and of the plot but yes yeah uh so i would recommend it if you haven't seen it yet uh go see it you you, you probably will cry if you're like me but um but but it, it'll be a good cry it'll be a cry that you should have um and then my second one, uh, very briefly, I mean, this was this is probably only something for anybody else who lives in Northwest Arkansas, but uh, I went to uh, Crystal Bridges, the Museum of American Art that we have here uh, with my family. We went for my dad's birthday the other day, and um, we saw an, an exhibit on uh, the art of American dance, which was really quite great and it was uh i think it was from the uh detroit institute of the arts originally which um it's a great great museum and if you happen to live in detroit go um but yeah it's it it was kind of like interactive including like static art as well as um curated videos uh that kind of went along with each segment of the exhibit and i really enjoyed it it was great yeah that sounds awesome i someday i'm mm-hmm. gonna have to make it out to crystal bridges yeah it's definitely worth it it's the, the the place itself is really cool and they they have a pretty decent collection so and uh they often they often get some fun uh special special collections in so cool I'll have to I'll have to visit all you guys out in our uh, out in Arkansas someday, and go see Crystal Bridges. Most definitely. Um, I was going to talk about oh so I finally got around to watching Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. This is a documentary nice. that he made in 2010, um, and it was originally shown I believe in like 3D IMAX, and like a chump I did not see it in that manner when it was released in theaters but watched it on my home television on netflix the other day um and boy do i wish i had seen it in imax in 3d because it is amazing (laughs) have you seen this katie 
No, I haven't. This is um, Werner Herzog's documentary about um, the caves at Chauvet, which are uh, French caves which were discovered in 1994 that contain... uh, In this region of France, there's lots of caves that have um, Stone Age cave paintings in them. Mm -hmm. Um, But these particular cave paintings are twice as old as all of the others. They're like 30,000 years old. Yeah, they're quite famous. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and they're... I mean, I knew about these before, and I'd you know studied cave uh, paintings uh, a little bit in in university. But these, I, the film is just amazing. Um, Werner Herzog is always really uh, makes you think about the same subject in many different ways. He shows them in many different ways. Um, you know, he talks with all of the people who's you know who the scientists uh, of all stripes who are studying these and what they study and why. Uh, and then, you know, the last, like, 15 minutes of the movie is basically just, like, music with, like, images of these cave paintings. Like, there's no oh, nice. narration, there's no, like, narrative, it's just he's showing you these images, uh, which I'm sure that part would have been, like, really mind-blowingly cool in, uh, in like, 3D IMAX, but uh, even on your home television, it is absolutely amazing. Um, these old cave paintings, uh, you know... At one point in the narration, he says, like, you know, these two drawings what that are made one on top of the other, they figured out from radiocarbon dating, were made 5,000 years apart. So the one was made, and then 5,000 years later, the other one was made sort of on top of it. And the style of the two drawings is basically the same. And if you realize, like, 5,000 years, 2,000 years ago, it's Cleopatra. 4,000 years ago was building the pyramids in Egypt. Like... 5,000 mm-hmm. years, and there's no change in artistic styles, and there are these two cave paintings made one on top of the other. So, I mean, it's it's just a really cool look at these cave paintings. Werner Herzog's great, as always. Um, I'm late to the party, I know, but it's really good, <laughs> and you should watch it on Netflix if you have not already. Man, rock art is fascinating. Oh, it's super cool. They, they also, at some point in the documentary, they, like, show you other like really old stuff you know they show you copies of like the venus of villendorf and other stuff like that but um it's just yeah it's super cool um and you can't you can't go in there in real life they don't let you in unless you're a very serious scientist so Mm -hmm. uh you'll have to watch this film i'm definitely gonna have to watch it um all right cool well uh listeners we'll see you next week when we discuss uh the conclusion of Half Lives, the first Louisa Ray uh, mystery. Um, we give our best wishes to Jonathan as he recovers. Yes, and I'm certain he will be back with us next week, as will you, dear listener. Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for Boom. listening to Library Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, 
you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better-sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. Thank you.